Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. It's Bob. I've got widgets, the 12 new rules for managing your employees as if they're real people. I've got Rod Wagner on the line today. Rod, thanks for coming on the show. Bob, great to be with you. Rod, widgets. You know, the first time I looked at that book, is oh, it's going to be about manufacturing and pumping out a bunch of stuff, but it's not. It's about people. And I want to know why you're defining people as widgets. Well, it's actually not me that's defining them as widgets. It is corporations themselves because the term they use is human resources. <laughs> and we, we've lost our sensitivity to that term. If it were brand new, people would balk. It's, are, are you kidding? What, you, that's what you call your people? And so I called the book Widgets to resensitize people to all the ways, whether we're calling them uh, FTEs or human capital or human resources or talent or, or you know, dozens of other words, that we've lost much of our humanity in dealing with the people who work at our companies. Mm. Well, you know, it, it's uh, there's a lot of problems with, with HR right now. Uh, one of them is the stupidity of autom- automation and where they get thousands and thousands and thousands of um, CVs and then they have some software tries to figure out out of the thousands who's the 100 that you could actually should actually talk to. Uh, do you think it's a... a the responsibility of HR to be doing uh, all that sh- all that sifting. Where is HR failing organizations? Are they not educating the people uh, in C-suite or managers that need to get more talent on board about how to do it? Where 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 are the bridges that have to be built? Well, I, I'm sympathetic to HR because many of the issues that have hit frontline employees have hit the HR department as well, including cutbacks. They've been asked to do a lot more with a lot less. At the same time, they have certain uh, legal or regulatory requirements that they have to follow. And so if they get a thousand applications coming in for a particular job, they're legally bound to to review those applications in a fair manner. Um, in some ways, a, a lot of what's happened in the uh, in, in the area of leadership and managing are changes that no one necessarily intended. I'm not. I'm not. I don't make the argument in the book that people um, meant for it to come to this. Simply that it did come to this. And and so when you have the ability to for thousands of people to apply online, HR has to have some means of going through those. And so since it was fired away, fired toward them with a computer, their response to it in many cases will be a computer. Now, if I were, if I were advising them, I would say you probably want to raise the bar. Don't make it so easy that someone, ha- that someone sitting in their pajamas at home at the kitchen table at 1030 at night can, uh, can apply to your organization in addition to dozens of others, make it a little tougher so that you ensure that the people who do apply are really, truly interested in your company, reduce the number of applications you have coming in, and then spend more time with each of those applications coming in. Yeah, it for me, I get that they're trying to do more for less. And I think a lot of times the problem with the ask when they're, they're putting out these, oh, we need a, a manager for marketing, and this manager has to do, and then they have this ridiculous, ridiculous list that if they found somebody that could do all those things, they probably don't have enough money to pay that person. So do you think that they're they're not being specific enough about the specific tasks that those people are going to have to need to do? I think that part of this is a hangover, if you will, from the Great Recession. Uh, companies got very picky. We switched from companies that I advised pre-recession who said, we want to be employer of choice. And they weren't that picky. Uh, I even talked to to certain people in HR departments where I was suggesting they need to be pickier. And they're like, we can't do that. Um, the, the environment is too tough. We just need to get people. And then the recession happened. There were layoffs and companies got very risk averse, more risk averse than they were in the past, that they only wanted to hire people who, like you say, 
could walk on water and everything, everything they, they had the Midas touch. Everything they did turned to gold. Uh, and, and they had unrealistic expectations. They also, I think, in many cases, narrow cast that you needed to have proven that you had done this thing for 10 years. No room for someone to join that's a, a near fit and say, well, look at the talent that they have. They will grow into the job. Um, and, and so, again, it's not something that anyone intended. I, I think that those job descriptions will loosen up because they'll have to. Now we're back in a situation where people are worried about whether they can get the folks that they need to staff the positions they have open. Well, I think definitely for frontline people, they're going to run into that much quicker than senior and mid-management because I think the big shift right now with senior and mid-management is trying to get more women into those positions because that is actually becoming a need for an organization to actually be competitive. If you don't have any women in your uh, senior leadership, then a lot of large organizations that are being run by women or owned by women won't even consider you as, as uh, a contender to be doing business with. I think that's absolutely true. I think that uh, as candidates think about working for an organization, they now have the ability to scrutinize it in ways they could not in the past. So, as you say, uh, a woman who's considering joining a particular organization is in a much better position to see who leads the organization, what their backgrounds are, not just their uh, demographics, but what are they like to work for. Um, For every employee, we have the increased transparency of sites like Glassdoor, where Again, in your pajamas at 10.30 at night at the kitchen table, you can uh, metaphorically have coffee with 50 people who either work at the company or used to work at the company by reading the online reviews on those kinds of sites. So you can get up to speed really quickly as to what it's like to work at that organization. And that information is not coming through official channels. Mm. It means that the reputation of the firm is no longer in the hands of the firm, but in fact, in the hands of its current and former employees. That's a game changer. Oh, big time! Because uh, y- you could have, you could be basically go online. I-, I did this for an organization I was going to check out before I did business with them, and I was checking out, and every single person was saying, "Oh my God, it, it, they work you too hard, and it's too much." And so I knew before. Um, I was going to go do that contract work that I better have a step up to the plate attitude. And so when I went in there to negotiate or to talk with them about why they should be using us, that's all I talked about. You know, we're into the challenge. We work harder than anybody else because I knew that's their culture. So, yeah, it can give you a massively uh, unfair advantage on uh, the competition if they're just going in there doing, oh, we've got the best customer service and we do that and that and not talking specifically to that, they're their culture or their demographic? I think there are dots that are yet to be connected as well. Mm. Uh, There is some early buzz about investors maybe using information, publicly posted or publicly available information about the motivation and morale uh, inside a company to decide whether to invest in that organization. And one of them that hasn't been connected, some two dots that haven't been connected, is the employee side and the customer side. I don't think it'll be too far down the line before potential customers or clients of an organization will be looking at that kind of information to understand, well, in the sales presentation, they said they were cutting edge and and they could handle anything and they were ready to go. But boy, when I read on the employee site, it sounds like it's right on the verge of breaking. It sounds like they're working their people 60 hours a week, um, that the the, uh, facilities or the... um, the computers or what have you are not keeping pace. And I wonder if I become their client or customer, whether they're going to be able to handle the additional work that I'm bringing them because it sounds like they're already fairly tapped as it is. Mm. And like with all this type of information, you have to take with a grain of salt. Uh, I mean, there are going to be some disgruntled people that are going to be ranting and raving. But really, it's not about reading one and making a decision. It's actually doing your due diligence and reading as many as possible so you can start to see patterns. So a lot of it also falls on uh, people putting the effort in. And you mentioned a couple of times, you know, sitting in your pajamas at 10 o'clock at night, uh, applying for jobs. 
that you're not in the right headspace. If you're going to apply for a job, and this is from a sales friend of mine, he told me, you get up in the morning, you have a shower, you get ready for work, you put on your suit, you put on your shoes, you put on your tie, you sit down, and you apply for jobs online. Because it's your job, and you should be taking it really, really serious. If you're just doing it for fun, or, ah, you know, I'll try it, maybe somebody offer me some money. Number one, you're just wasting uh, HR department's time because you're not really, really interested in that job. And you're not taking it professionally. So you've got to have that attitude because there is a huge difference between that stance of being in your pajamas and being in a business suit uh, is a huge difference psychologically. And people just don't get that. Well, that, that and you're talking to a computer when you're in your pajamas filing that. So you, it's a long time before you actually get to a person. Last time I applied to a job, I took some work samples, a traditional cover letter, uh, copies of my past books, put them in a packet and um, made sure they got delivered directly to the HR department because I wanted to signal I'm not an electronic, I'm not, I'm not bits and bytes, and, and this application was not one of 20 that I uh, put together the previous night. No, I'm quite interested in this job, and I want to connect person to person as soon as possible. Later on, I was, in fact, required to go in. I, I skipped the, uh, the electronic application, and later on they said, you know, you need to go in and fill out the electronic application. Well, fine, but at that point, I'm a known commodity. And, and I think it's important for candidates to humanize themselves in the face of what can be uh, dehumanizing technology that HR has to have because of the barrage of applications that they get online. Mm. Well, you know, it's, you know, what you just said there is the way that people should be approaching jobs. It's like you don't apply for 50 jobs. You research, you find out what the best companies are that you get that you would love to work for. Get it down to like five and then do an aggressive marketing campaign to them and do stuff that's going to make yourself jump out because this doesn't make any sense. If you can send out to 50 or 100 or 200 or 1,000, if you don't really care, why should they care about you? You're absolutely correct. And I think it's important whether one's a leader, a manager, or, or a potential employee of an organization to take stock of how the world has changed. I saw someone on Twitter uh, mentioned just the other day that it had been 10 years since Facebook uh, came to the fore. Well, that changed things. LinkedIn uh, has changed things. And as it relates to uh, job candidates and employees, we all have our quote-unquote brand out there where previously it would have been a printed resume that only would have come out of the desk when you were looking uh, thinking of, of changing jobs. Now, and this is actually something that could work in your favor, now if there is a job posted on LinkedIn, a LinkedIn will show who you know who either works at the company or used to work at the company, which means you can reach out to that individual and say, hey, I, I see this posting uh, at your company. Tell me about it. And your first interaction with the organization may actually be with a current or former employee having coffee and saying, tell me what's going on. Again, more power in the hands of the job candidate if you use it uh, and a completely different world if you are a leader or manager as far as how you need to be authentic, direct, transparent. You need to recognize your employees. You need to not burn them out. Uh, do all the things so that you can trust if a potential job candidate uh, reaches out to someone at your organization. You know uh, the odds are really high that they'll say, it's a fantastic place. You'd love it. You should, you should absolutely keep going and you should apply. And I'll talk to my friend, um, in HR about about you. Yeah, well, that that's approaching an organization on that level. It's like you almost work inside the organization, and you you would treat it like you're already an employee, and you're just trying to do a lateral shift within an organization. That's a that's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, and it, uh, as I say, the the key is the the rules have changed. The one we've discussed here is really uh, around transparency. Um, but it, it, we're now at a point in the job market, the rebound of the labor market, that an employee who has strong credentials should be picky. 
you, you have the information at your disposal, um, you, you should really make sure that you take advantage of that information. And yes, companies will still be quite uh, demanding of the kind of credentials that they want. They are still going to um, be very risk-averse. They'll be slower to hire than they uh, were in the past, and it's going to be harder to navigate in many ways than it used to be. On the other hand, so many of my clients and the people that I speak with on a more informal basis are really quite nervous about getting the right kinds of, uh, keeping people and attracting the right kinds of people that they're going to need in the years ahead. I think that's healthy. It was actually unhealthy during the recession when the number of people who were involuntarily terminated exceeded the number of people who were quitting. And now we're back to the more natural state of things that employees have some leverage, that, that key leverage that we can decide whether to stay and we can also decide where we're going to go next. So let's talk a little bit about the book. You know, you've got, you've, you've got your 12 rules. Uh, is it a type of book that people should read cover to cover or can they just jump in and, and grab a rule that they think is going to work for them? Whichever works for them, I do suggest reading the first two chapters that lay the foundation for the 12 rules. But once they have that foundation as to where the first chapter is really, here's where we are right now and explains why the book is called Widgets and, and talks about how we've lost our humanity. The second chapter is around employee reciprocity, or I suppose you should say human reciprocity, that we really do look out for those who look out for us, and that includes our employers. Once you get You've gotten grounded on that if you want to jump ahead to the chapter on recognition because let's say recognition or lack of recognition is an issue that your organization is dealing with. Um, that's certainly fine. The, the chapters uh, in the core chapters around the, the rules do not necessarily rely on the one that precedes them. They are uh, independent um, editorials, if you will, and reports on what is going on within that particular rule right now. So this is a question I ask almost all my authors. When you were gathering this information and, and taking it from your brain and your research and putting it into a coherent series of pages, where was your aha moment? What was something that you knew before you started doing that, but when you wrote it down and put it in book form, it crystallized and became an aha moment for you? Before I write, ideas have the ability to be nonlinear. They can kick around in my brain and interact with each other. It is always interesting to me, this being my third book, how um, it's a little bit like taking uh, kindergartners uh, and, and arranging them for a field trip that they all have to line up to get on the bus. And, and writing is very much that process of getting those th thoughts to line up. And there are certain breakthroughs that happen along the way. So, for example, in the chapter on Make Them Fearless, it talks about the uh, hangover effects of the Great Recession and the fear that that has uh, that, cre that created among companies and among employees. Um, there was a point at which I researched some of the statistics on what's called labor hoarding. Labor hoarding is the idea that if there's a downturn, the leader of an organization or the leadership of an organization may decide and have in the past for strategic reasons, well, we're going to take a hit to our profits. We're not going to cut loose people so severely that we maintain our profitability. Instead, when the recession hits, we're going to lose. We're going to our, our profitability is going to go down more than we do layoffs because we want to make sure we have people. We're going to hoard that labor. We're going to make sure that we keep our best people so we've got them when the economy goes back up again. Well, I found as I was writing and researching that chapter that there are a number of studies out there that show labor hoarding is decreasing. In other words, the world really has changed. It's much more likely in a downturn that a company will get impatient and not have a long-term view and will do layoffs to maintain its profitability and find itself on the back end without the talented people that it went into the recession with. That's a fundamental difference. That's a fundamental change in the unwritten social contract between employers and employees. And once you change that, now the employees are going to have a reaction given the fact that they know that an organization like Target, which uh, a month or two ago cut loose 1,700 people uh, with very little notice, 
That's a game changer. Once you do that to an organization, the people who remain are going to be much less likely to commit themselves to to the red bullseye and say, I'll do whatever it takes because I love my company and, and, and they look out for me and I know that they'll stay with me through thick and thin. Now they've made it more transactional. So there have been a number, of, there's one of those for every single one of the new rules where as I was writing and researching, uh, something struck me or I came across some studies that said, yep, things, uh, 2015 is substantially different than 2005. And whether you're a leader, a manager, or frontline employee, you need to understand what those new rules are. Yeah, it, it, the, the concept of uh, lifetime employment, I think, died 10, 15 years ago uh, when we went through a series of, of smaller recessions and bigger recessions. Um, and people realized, like, wow, I, uh, I'm not, I, why should I care about this company? And I think there's a major hangover happening now where it's harder to train people because of that. Uh, it's harder to keep people if they're super talented because they're constantly looking for other opportunities. It's the, the whole headspace of your employees from C-suite down are always looking for new job opportunities. So your organization not only... Uh, doesn't have to be profitable and have big benefits and pay people consistently, but also have a, um, a not an infrastructure, but a vitality on the organization that stimulates people and makes them feel happy about being there. Where And there's been a lot of studies where you can pay pr- people to a certain amount of money, and then beyond that point, it, it's very ineffective. And things like uh, their responsibilities and their ability to feel like they're in control uh, are way more important after they get to a certain pay uh, scale. Uh, they certainly are more important from a, a day-to-day standpoint. So in our study, there's a one of the new rules is make money a non-issue. And we, um, the, the team behind the book and I decided to word it that way because that's true to the psychology of it, that if you feel like you're not being fairly compensated, not only that does that become an issue, it can become the issue, the kind where you go look for a new job. But assuming that you feel like you are being paid fairly, and even better if you feel like you are being paid generously, then from a day-to-day motivation standpoint, it's not the money that does it. It's table stakes. It's in good shape. It's in the background because it's fine. But on a day-to-day basis, the thing you get out of bed for is to have a great collaboration with someone who you think is really smart, really cool, really interesting. They're going to bring new ideas to the table. It's the fact that you're going to get recognized if you work really hard. It's the fact that you work at a cool company and the time there is enjoyable. It's the fact that you have uh, very transparent leadership and they share with you uh, their vision of where they're going and you don't feel like you have to second guess or read between the lines as to what they are saying. And in many cases, um, what's most important is the sense of meaning and the sense of accomplishment, that you're going to be able to do something. You can come home and brag about money, on the other hand, unless you're a commissioned salesperson with a tremendous amount of variability in your pay. Um, The money thing, uh, while it shouldn't be an issue, tends to be kind of boring, that you got paid one Wednesday exactly the same amount as you got paid two Wednesdays before and the same amount as two Wednesdays before that. So you don't go rushing home and say, hey, guess what, honey? I got paid the same amount this week as I was paid two weeks ago. That's not news. But the fact that you got recognized uh, for something that you did and they made a big deal out of it, that's news. That's what you talk about, and that's, that stays more kind of top of mind for, for an employee. For people that are you know, reading the book and, and going through the, the 12 new rules, how should they be approaching the book as far as implementation? I mean, there's a big difference between reading a book and saying, oh, that was a great book, and reading a book and then saying, wow, those are amazing things. What do I do next? There's, there are two, two aspects to that. First is where are they right now? And we have a website that goes along with the book, widgetsthebook.com, that has a free self-assessment. You don't have to buy the book. There's no catch. There's no, once you get to the end, hey, for another $5, uh, you can have this and this this. You'll get a full report on where you are on exactly the same research that was used to, uh, to write the book. 
and, and that gives you direct information whether you're high or low. It'll show your overall percentile and it will show where you are. There's five levels of each of the rules. It will, there, so that makes 244 million possible combinations of report. Um, it will show you exactly where you are and it will give you specific advice as to how to improve your own engagement. Now, if you have responsibility for an organization, then the questions, the, the book does not say, it's not a checklist. It doesn't say do this, do this, do this. It's not that kind of a book. But it does pose the kinds of questions as you're reading through and, and takes, for example, uh, let's take the issue of um, seeing their future. You have, let's say, a five-year plan for your organization. But let's say your company does occasional layoffs. Well, for your employees, you're telling them, please help us build get us to this point in five years, but they also know they might not be there. So the question for an employer, a leader or a manager, would be how are, if you want to, if you're going to continue doing layoffs, or you have to do um, some of them uh, during the boom and bust cycles, then the question becomes what will you do for your employees that when you do the next layoff, it's not as agonizing as it could be, that you've prepared them so well for their future, whether it's inside or outside the organization, that those comings and goings do not grind the gears in the way they seem to have at this point. So there's, a, there's that kind of an issue posed with each of the 12 rules uh, where, where a leader or manager uh, needs to consider, well, what would I, if I were an employee, what would I do and what can I do as their leader or manager to make this work better for them, not only during the time that they're here, but to also prepare them for where they'll be um, down the line, which might be outside this organization. Well, you know, and that's a perfect segue for my next question because, you know, there's an amazing amount of information here. But at the end, you've got in the appendix, and, and it's about the science of what these rules are about. Can we talk to that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, in the book, the, the, the book proper, uh, the, the, the new rules are packaged pretty cleanly. Um, there, everything is, is cleaned up and the statistics are, are right there to show here's what the power of this is, the stories. Uh, my editor and I took uh, great pains to make sure that the stories were you know, nice and readable and you kind of get in and get out quickly. Um, but it's important to understand that these are, were not just written on the back of a napkin somewhere. Um, the team behind this book and I spent a long time, two solid waves of research uh, in the United States and six other areas, um, regions around the globe, asking more provocative questions to understand what was the unwritten social contract between employers and the people who work there. So each of the new rules is a statistical factor, a separate statistical factor that emerged from the research. Uh, therefore, we can say, if you want the most from your people, this is what they need from the organization to perform at that uh, that higher level. And the technical appendix in the book is really intended to give practitioners or skeptics or um, graduate students who need to be able to have this be vetted and rigorous enough that they can include it in, in, their, in their thesis or their term paper. Those that want to know what's the wiring underneath this, um, Dr. Brenda Kowski, who was the, uh, the research director on, on, the, on the studies themselves, uh, wrote a fantastic appendix that outlines where the science comes from. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty impressive because it's basically, it'll go, the 10th rule, unite them, and then it's uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 20, 30, let me just go here, yeah, 30 points of of reference points. I mean, it's amazing how much information is here. I mean, look at it, if you just went and read... All the appendix notes, you, you have like two or three years worth of research here ahead of you. I wanted to make sure that this book was um, not my opinion, although my opinion does, you know, I'm the author of the book, my opinion does um, get inserted in many places where it's appropriate to do so. But the science itself, the new rules, that those are not my opinion or anyone else's opinion, that they are in fact um, grounded in empirical work. So that 
someone who is looking at using these concepts to better his or her business can rely on them and know that these came from listening to thousands of employees, asking them very provocative questions about where they are right now, and then analyzing those answers relative to their intentions to find out which of these was uh, most motivating. And that, in fact, is the same research that an individual, when they go to the website, widgetsabook.com, can get uh, applied to them to say, well, how do I compare? You know, am I at the 50th percentile? Am I at the 75th? Am I real? Uh, the way I feel about my compensation, uh, do I feel better about my compensation than the average person out there? My manager looking out for me and individualizing where, where am I? Do I have a good job or do I have a bad job? I think sometimes we can end up um, not having context, not understanding where we fit in the larger scheme because we're only inside our own heads. We're not inside everybody else's heads. Mm. Well, you know, what I got out of it too is becoming conscious of all the things I was actually unconscious about. And I think that's a, that's a big uh, asset that this book has. If you're like your senior management or, or you have people underneath you, just reading the book, even if you don't follow a lot of the stuff, it'll just give you an awareness of where the people are in the organization headspace-wise and what you can do to improve it on very subtle ways. I think in many cases, we, we all have blind spots. Um, I'll mention two. One is that frequently organizations pounce so much faster on what's wrong than pouncing on what's right that we can create a blind spot and we can create thankless jobs for our people. When we step back and really think about it, like, wow, yeah, no, they haven't gotten that much recognition. I suppose I have unintentionally made this position a, a thankless job, and then we can correct our course. You mentioned earlier, you asked about epiphanies. One of the most interesting ones I had occurred over a year ago when we had created the instrument, uh, and we had not posted it yet, and I decided I was up at 1 a.m. I just ground through all kinds of stuff, and it was just one of those days we all have when I had things I had to get to people. And they needed them there the next morning, and I knew I could sleep in the next morning, but, I, but the, as long as those things were emailed out to people. So it's, it's 1 a.m. I finally hit send on the last email, and I think, man, oh, man, I am toast. This job, I, I don't know. I, I feel like my number would be about a 50 right now. And then right then I thought, well, why don't I find out? I mean, I, my team and I have just built an instrument. Why don't I go through? This would be interesting little thing is find out where I am right now. Turned out I was, a, I was much higher than I thought I was. I was in the high 70s, 78, 79, because I got a really cool job, because um, I get the chance to take the lead, because I get a great sense of accomplishment, meaning you can go through all, nearly every single one of the rules, and I was in really good shape. I was in bad shape on one of them, wouldn't shock you to find out it was help them thrive. My work-life balance was off. And so that report said, essentially, you've got a, and particularly that the module about help them thrive, it said, you got a great job. You're loving life. You're in a really good spot. But if you don't fix this 60-hour-a-week thing, it's going to kill you, even though you love your job. And I stood back and I thought, okay, that helped. That helped. Things that my team and I had written and programmed when we were calmer, helped me at a time when I was a little bit emotional and, and exhausted and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not sure this, this job's really doing it for me. And I, and I found out, no, it's, you're in great shape on 11 of the 12 rules, but you've got one that is a pothole in the road and you need to fix that and then you'll be all right. And th that's really why we put that tool out there is so that people can manage their own careers and so they have information to help them make those decisions and have very constructive conversations with their managers and their leaders. I think we're well past the time, way past the time when, if it ever were the case, that an organization can be expected to, quote unquote, engage its employees. It's a collaborative um, effort between the employee and, and the manager and leader. Mm. Well, you know, and, and as you were describing that, you know, it's almost like the disgruntlement meter where, you know, you just feel, ah, oh, I'm underappreciated. I hate my job. Just by taking that 
quick test, it really enables you to say, oh, okay, well, maybe things aren't so bad here. Maybe I'm just in a bad mood. Maybe I should take a break and walk around the block and come back and refresh myself. I think a lot of times people just get stuck in their own heads and they can't see the forest for the trees. And tools like this really enable them to, to get feedback. I mean, you can go to your coworkers or your boss and say, yeah, I'm just not feeling that great today. They can't help you because they don't know why. But if you go and do the test and then come to them and say, oh, look, I've been doing this test and I've been noticing I really feel that I've been underappreciated. Could you do me a big favor the next couple of weeks? Can you just let me know when I do something great because it would really help me get over this hump? It's partially the responsibility of the employee to help management uh, understand what they need. And I kind of got this. I did a lot of uh, pro bono work for some charities. And I do all this work and we do some very, very cool stuff. And then they come back and say, oh, we want you to come to an awards night and give you a plaque to thank you. And I said, I don't need that. I don't want that. Doing the projects and working with you guys was my reward because you let me do cool things. And that's all I needed out of you. He said, no, no, no. So I would go to these events, not for myself, but for them because they needed to reward me so they would feel better about themselves. Yes, it's absolutely true. that It's important that, in some ways, we all function best if we're amateur psychologists. <laughs> if we spend time deliberately thinking about, well, where am I right now? And where are the people around me? What's going on? It's the reason why the first rule is get inside their heads. A great manager will be inside your head. He or she will understand. They can read you. you know, I, my, my manager's fantastic. And he can read from my face. You know, he'll say, you look awful. You know, you're, you're worn out. Um, you need to get out of here and relax. Or conversely, he'll say, you know, you seem really energized. You're really pumped up. What's going on? At the same time, as great of a manager as I have, and in a few instances in the past I've had in the past, uh, managers are not mind readers. And we've reached a point at which uh, employees have to be grown-ups. We simply have to be. We run our own investments now. The company doesn't have this kind of paternalistic pension. Oh, yeah, you work here 25, 30 years, we'll have your retirement all figured out. No, we direct our own. And if you want to switch your money, a, a colleague of mine was just talking about moving. So he was on the phone with his broker. I could hear him saying he had bought such and such of this mutual fund, wanted to move it to another. He's running his own retirement, his investment for his retirement. Increasingly, we're making our own health care decisions. Uh, Glassdoor is open 24-7 for people to go in and give their opinion uh, about their jobs. And LinkedIn, we all have a presence. Most of us have a presence on LinkedIn where we are managing our own profile, the way that the outward uh, world sees us. And it's actually high time that we as employees begin managing our own engagement, if you will. I think the term engagement is getting a little bit tired, but our own um, motivation, our own morale in concert, in collaboration. If you have a great leader or manager, absolutely. Um, it'd be uh, foolish not to, to bring them into the process. But when your company's not promising you lifetime employment, when you're running your own healthcare, your own investments, um, managing your own brand, we also need to be aware of where we stand and where a job is or isn't working for us. We ultimately have to make our own decisions on work-life balance and in a whole host of issues. And, and the only way to do that is if an individual has solid information as to where they stand. And that's a large part of, of why we put that assessment on the website. For people that are going through the book and then having a, a series of like aha moments like, wow, okay, I got to do this, I got to do that, Matt, they've done uh, the assessment and, and those type of things. How should they manage the introduction of the philosophies that they're reading in this book to other people in the organization? Because, I mean, a lot of times that's where a book gets stuck. You, you've read a book, basically you're on fire, it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. How can you introduce it to other members of your team without saying, oh, you have to read this book? Well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying, oh, you have to read this book, or they could, you know, they could loan it to them. That's a, um, you know, we, we uh, put the first chapter of the book on the website so it could be easily shared. But again, I would come back to that self-assessment. Um, it, it, it's free. You can send it out along to, to anyone. And so it's very easy to say to the members of an entire team, 
Go to widgetsthebook.com and get your number. That's confidential information. The one caveat I would put there is I would never want to see a leader or manager say, okay, all of you go get your numbers and then bring them in here and we're going to all show what our number is. Because in that case, you're going to, you, you, if, if you're someone who's very frustrated, you're going to inflate your scores. Hmm. It's confidential information for that person. But there's nothing wrong with saying to members of an entire team, go out and get your number. It's confidential. It's between you and, you and the, the, the assessment. Uh, but kind of find out where you are. And that once you have that information personalized, it makes it more likely that you will continue on. For, a frontline, for someone who's not a supervisor, uh, I would hope that in the book they see a benchmark. They would question, am I getting from my company um, what Rod talks about in this book as being the way that people ought to be managed? If you're a leader or manager, you'd ask those same questions, but also a benchmark as to how am I doing in these areas? Am I inside my employees' heads? Am I making them fearless? Have I made money a non-issue? Am I helping them thrive or am I burning them out? Uh, all through each of the rules to and, – and in some ways, you can go through the self-assessment and look at those same questions and say, hmm, I wonder how my employees would answer this right now. I sometimes actually suggest to leaders that they go through and do the self-assessment not for themselves but answer the questions as though you were a member of your team and be absolutely candid as to what you think they would answer and obviously, you're making suppositions, but when you get to the end, in most cases, when I've done this with a leader of an organization, um, they've come away with some really useful information without even having surveyed their people. They're already off and running. Mm. Well, it goes back again to the, the consciousness thing. Just by saying, I am conscious of this situation, you're actually putting some real thought into it, whereas before, it was just some buzz in the background and you weren't really thinking about it on a strategic or realistic platform. It's just like, oh, yeah, well, you know, sometimes people have bad days. Sometimes people have good days. Now it's like, why are these people having bad days and why are these people having good days and how can we improve that? I find in many cases it's helpful to imagine if your brother or sister or your son or daughter were thinking about joining your organization or your team and then you go through the 12 rules. Uh, if they came on board, are there things here that would make them fearful? Are there things, would, would they be making as much money here as they could make someplace else? And if so, if not, why not? How would their work-life balance be? Um, would the company leadership be as transparent as it should be? Is this a cool enough organization? Or would there be cooler places where they could go work? That kind of, as you say, intentionality around it is... Uh, really the first step. And if you can be deliberate in that way, you're well on your way uh, to improving or creating the strategy for improving uh, the morale of the organization because you're not, you don't have that blind spot anymore. And you're doing what I think is um, one of the most important and profound acts that any leader or manager can do and that is to look at the world through the eyes of someone for whom you have responsibility. Now you're in a position to improve someone's life. We do that for our kids, hopefully. And we wonder, well, um, I, I wonder if my kid is worried about the, the test next week. Or I wonder if my kid um, feels good about his or her performance on the sports field. If you can do that for your employees, that's a fantastic thing. And it can begin you down a path where if you continue along that way and you follow through for years, uh, people will look very fondly on you as one of the greatest leaders or managers they ever had. And, and after we've all made our money uh, or along the way of making all our money and helping our businesses succeed, I, I would hope that most people would also want to leave that kind of legacy that people say, I'm really glad that I work for him. I'm really glad I work for her. They, they really made my life better. Well, it's, it's using empathy as a, as a business tool. Well, you know, putting yourselves in their shoes so you can relate to them and say, ah, I think yes. But I also think that it is part of, you know, there's an interesting conversation going on in a few places out there, uh, partly around, partly around compensation. The basic argument that's going on or the premise floating around is that in the past, let's say the 
you know, the, the Hewlett-Packard kind of companies, the IBMs of the 1960s, early 70s or so, in many places they paid more than they needed to. And part of the reason was they wanted to pay more than they needed. They wanted it to – they felt a – a moral obligation to their employees and part of the way they gauge success is by saying we employ a lot of people and we're able to pay them exceptionally well period not just because oh we know if we pay them well they'll work hard for us no we want that's part of the outcome in and of itself we want to pay them well increasingly and there was an article in the Harvard Business Review about this um, not that long ago uh, that increasingly whether it is uh, Walmart taking people off of insurance or Google paying people, uh, uh, lavishing people with perks, the calculation is simply, will I get something in return? And if I get, if I get something in return by taking people at Walmart off of insurance or I get something in return by paying very handsomely at Google and having fantastic perks, then I will do it. And I think that's a more selfish perspective, actually, a less, less of a, a legacy-based, hey, let's do it because – that's part of how I gauge success. If I can make my employees wealthy, if I can make them happy along the way to making this company uh, highly profitable, both of those independently are a worthy goal and something this company seeks to accomplish. Yeah, it, it almost, you know, the difference between a, a company that lavishes or, or, or has the potential of, of giving you huge rewards is usually that's a startup scenario when you're you're everybody's in it for let's build this company because if it grows and we do really well and we sell it or or it goes viral or whatever the your goal is we're all going to cash in big time and then it's not an issue of the money of course it's the money but you put in ridiculous hours but you love it and it's it's fun and everybody's doing it and you get this great camaraderie happening that's an incredibly powerful machine to build uh, it is, and I think there's something to be said. Given how much, let's let's assume someone's going to work for a company for um, several decades. That's a lot of their life. I mean, they really are giving much of their life to uh, a pursuit of the organization's goals. Uh, that's much more involvement than a customer would have. It's much more involvement than most investors would have. And yet companies are obsessed over making sure the customer is well taken care of, obviously, because he or she has the money in their wallet. And they tend to be exceptionally obsessed with shareholder return. These people have invested their money and they should be able to get rich by putting their money with us. I think we need to rebuild the third leg of that stool, if you will, and say, you know what, if someone comes to work here 20 years, that's a lot of their life. They should be happy while they're here. And along with the stockholders getting rich, along with the customers being happy, we should make our employees wealthy along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Or like you're saying, it's, maybe it's not a wealth in the monetary sense, but a wealth in lifestyle or a wealth in the, the friendships that they build in the organization and to actually help people grow those friendships and say, you know, hey, you know, we want to go and do something. So the company says, well, you know, that's an awesome thing. Let's plan for it. And in six months, these three people, we will send you off and you guys as buddies, you can go to Europe and we will help subsidize that as a bonus. Absolutely. The research is really clear that um, those kinds of, uh, they're sometimes called hedonic rewards, the ability to do something that, to to. Uh, treat yourself to something you would not have done otherwise, whether it's a trip to Europe or it's the ability to um, cash in some recognition points and buy yourself a, bl a brand new fly rod. Uh, the, the research is really clear that that resonates actually in, a, in, in many cases in a stronger way than, than money does because the money gets spent on your kid's hockey fees or on your mortgage or whatever. But if you are able to get um, – a fly rod or something that is memorable, that is personal, every time you pull that fly rod from the back of your car and, and get uh, you're about to hit the stream, you're reminded that, oh, this is something my company gave me for working above and, and beyond the call. Absolutely. It's, it's powerful stuff, and, and it's shocking that organizations don't really get such a fundamental thing. And like you're saying, they should be doing it in a selfless way, not an, oh, let's do this so we can sneakily make this person happier to work harder. It's like, why do you have to think that way? Why can't you just say, wouldn't it be great 
and then X. And a lot of people, they I don't know, it's been bred out of them or they've just been uh, bludgeoned during their career. So that type of thinking has basically disappeared. Well, I think the rece- it's uh, one of those lingering effects of the recession. The recession made people hunger- hunkered down. It was every man, every woman for himself or herself. We got um, more, more fearful. Uh, we got more selfish. And, and the research is really clear that that doesn't, that doesn't play well. Uh, it is one of the more interesting twists of behavioral economics or behavioral game theory, if you will, is that when we are most sincerely out for the benefit of our counterpart, we do best. So when we say to an employee, I want you to be happy here. I mean, that's not a trick. I'm not like, I want to make you happy here so that you do make me happy. No, I want you to be happy. Just kind of a golden rule kind of thing. I, 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 that's my value. That's my morality. I want you to enjoy your time here. I want you to be motivated. I want you to be well recognized. I want you to, to do really well. I want you to make more money here than you could someplace else. And, and period, right there. The response from the employee is reciprocal. You want me to be happy? Well, I want this company to thrive, period. I want it to do well. Why? Well, because this company wants me to be happy and I feel a sense of responsibility. And uh, uh, and so people find themselves extremely invested in the work of the organization. So sometimes when we have, I think it's really clear, most of the time when we have the best of intentions um, and the least pecuniary of motivations, we actually do best financially. It's a bit of a contradiction, but human nature is a contradiction all the time. <laughs> Widgets, the 12 new rules for managing your employees as if they were people. I've been chatting with Rod Wagner today. Thanks for being on the show, Rod. It was amazing. Bob, thank you for your time. I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.